This is episode number 567 with Dr. Amy Brand, the director and publisher of the MIT Press. Today's episode is brought to you by Monte Carlo, the data observability leaders, and by Einblick.ai, the collaborative way to explore data. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got a special episode for you today with the extraordinary and pioneering Dr. Amy Brand. As the director and publisher of the MIT Press, Amy leads one of the world's largest and most influential university presses. She is co-founder of Knowledge Futures Group, a nonprofit that provides technology to empower organizations to build the digital infrastructure required for open access publishing. She created a new open access business model called Direct to Open and launched MIT Press Kids, the first collaboration between university and children's publishers. And on top of all that, she was the executive producer of Picture a Scientist, an exceptional documentary that was selected to premiere at the prestigious Tribeca Film Festival and was recognized with the 2021 Kavli Science Journalism Award. Prior to the MIT Press, Amy held senior leadership roles at Harvard University and a number of organizations that bridge academia, publishing, and industry. She holds a PhD in cognitive science from MIT itself. Today's episode is well-suited to a broad audience, not just data scientists, so you're in the right place for a fascinating discussion with a brilliant person, whatever your background. In the episode, Amy details what open access means, why open access papers, books, data, and code are invaluable for data scientists and anyone else doing research and development. She talks about the new metadata standard she developed to resolve issues around accurate attribution of who did what for a given academic publication, She talks about how we can change the STEM fields, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, to be welcoming to everyone, including historically underrepresented groups. And she fills us in on what it's like to devise and create an award-winning documentary film. All right, you ready for this wonderful mind-expanding episode? Let's go. Amy, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I've been so excited about getting you on the program. Where in the world are you calling in from? I am calling in from Newton, Massachusetts, uh, not too far from Cambridge. Nice, and uh, not surprising that you are close to Cambridge, given that you work at MIT Press, which is in Cambridge. So um, I'm sure all listeners are aware of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is one of the world's foremost universities, uh, and it has a great press. So the MIT Press is one of the world's largest university publishers. It's behind, in our industry, the Adaptive Computation and Machine Learning series, which is edited by the absolutely iconic data scientists Christopher Bishop, Michael I. Jordan, and others, and it includes books like Ian Goodfellow, Yashua Bengio, and Aaron Corville's Deep Learning book, which is a Bible for me. It is the book probably that I uh, refer to the most of any. Um, and it's a great example of an MIT Press book that is freely available as 
uh, HTML at deeplearningbook.org. We're going to talk about that freeness <laughs> again very soon. Um, other titles in the series are uh, Sutton and Bartow's Reinforcement Learning, An Introduction, Kevin Murphy's Machine Learning, A Probabilistic Perspective, and a couple of dozen other amazing books. Um, so thank you, Amy, for being behind such amazing books. Thank you. And yeah, we, we publish a lot in data science going out into less, even less kind of machine learning computational areas. So happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, so what does it mean to be a director and publisher at MIT Press? What does that role involve? I, I have one of the most fun jobs in the world because I just get to live in this world of just amazing ideas and help people see their creative works through to fruition. Um, but, you know, day to day, what it means is running an organization of 100 plus people, mainly in, in the Boston, Cambridge area, but uh, several of them in the UK as well. Uh, we publish about 350 books a year across a range of disciplines, 40 journals. Um, I feel sometimes like the orchestra conductor, you know, I'm, uh, you know, trying to, to, to make it all work smoothly, but I have a fabulous team. We're a pretty non-hierarchical organization. Um, that's the director part. Uh, the publisher part, which was added to my title about a year ago, uh, and I was Ooh. kind of insistent on it was really important to me because, uh, I get to sign all the publishing contracts. So I'm, ultimately responsible for um, making those decisions. Now, of course, wow. I consult widely with my team and others. So literally every single book that gets published by the MIT Press, your signature is on the contract. You make a final decision. That is correct. Yes. Wow. That's cool. I didn't realize that one person could have so much power. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's somewhat distributed. Actually, m less distributed at MIT than a lot of other university presses where the kind of faculty editorial boards are, uh, you know, have more power than they do at MIT. It's more consultative, but you know, that, that was decided long before I became director. Cool. Yeah. And so publisher for, uh, the last year, at least in your title, having that there, yeah. but director for seven years. Um, so uh -huh. you have been leading MIT press for some time. Um, so something that we alluded to already when I was talking about the Goodfellow book and it's being freely available online is that uh, MIT Press uh, publishes a lot of books with open access. So uh, over 12% of books are freely available. Why is open access valuable to scientists, data scientists, anybody doing research and development? Well, I, I think it's it's valuable to all scholars and, and researchers. There There's... Um, a special value to people in data science when you think about having that underlying information available to mine and compute over. Um, but, you know, our investment in open access goes back literally decades at the MIT Press, uh, you know, and, and for us, it's an, it's an issue of making uh, scholarship as equitably accessible around the world as possible um, to as many researchers as possible and readers as possible. And also um, to broadening participation in the whole research enterprise by making this information widely available. Um, among the many other things that I'm involved in in relation to the open data, open science, open access spaces, I'm on the board of Creative Commons, which of course is the organization that created no and wow. yeah, runs, runs the um, open licenses that we all use when we put our 
works wow. online. I didn't know that. That didn't. I didn't catch that in my research before the episode. That's amazing, and yeah, it it makes so much sense to me that research, academic work, which is often publicly funded, it makes sense to me that it should be available then to the public to read. And so there's been a big shift since I've been an academic. So it's now ten years since I finished my PhD. And it was during my PhD period where um, not only did we start to digitize works, so it's crazy to me to think that in my undergrad, especially in the first couple of years of my undergrad, I had to physically go to the library That's right. and photocopy journal articles that yeah. I wanted to read later. Um, if you look back at, at the history of digital information and open access, um, you know, it, it, it really did take off in in the scientific journal space but but now today and and certainly in the way in which we publish at the MIT press it's across all disciplines and 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 everything that we publish um, but it's a complicated topic so you mentioned okay publicly funded research should be openly accessible it's it's not that simple I mean that is a core principle but often you are talking about um, you know, the creative works, you know, blood, sweat and tears of an individual or a lab um, that has data right. that it wants to use and leverage in, in other ways. Um, and so these these decisions um, are, are sometimes, you know, individual decisions, not necessarily made on the principle that that uh, it should be open. So for us, for example, when we publish open access books, it's always with um, the consent of the author, if it's something that we initiate or because the author's like in the case of the deep learning book, have demanded or expected that the work be made openly accessible. And that was a great example for us because, you know, we, it's very easy if you look at the business of publishing for us to take, say, scholarly monographs and professional books, which have a relatively specialized limited audience and say, we'll figure out a model in which we can make those openly available. We'll still sell some in print and digital form. But if you look at um, you know, our textbook program, especially in computer science, AI, machine learning, which has been so core to the revenue of the press and the history of the press, it was a lot, it's a lot harder. But now, you know, a huge percentage of our, our reference and textbooks in, in AI, machine learning are openly available. And what we saw with, the, with, with deep learning um, was just, you know, it was the right book at the right time. And it was so tremendously successful in print while it was being made openly available. Yeah, I think it's hard to tell because you can't kind of, you, it's hard to figure out from the data what the causal impact is. But I hypothesize without any real data to back me up that making something publicly available, it increases the reach so much. It allows a book like Deep Learning to have such a broad impact that everybody's aware of it. You're like, wow, this amazing book is available online. But you're also like, but a lot of people, despite having access to it online, for me, for a lot of people having the physical book, I'm able to attend to it a lot better. I'm able to make a lot more progress. I feel like I can understand uh, concepts a lot better as a result of that. Um, you know, you can step away from the computer and just work through the book. Um, and so for me, the book is then hugely valuable. And so I might look at the first few pages online, the first chapter, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to buy this. And I think that that experience happens for a lot of people. 
I, I think that's true. Um, we see that a lot in open textbooks where we know that students want to have the digital file as well as that print book. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly with a book like this, with many books, um, we've done some experiments where it hasn't uh, worked so well. So for example, when we've done like a $0 Kindle edition of a book mm -hmm. um, that really depresses um, print sales. And so, you know, we've, we've had to kind of find our way to doing this because we believe it's the right thing to do. And we want to support, support our authors who want their works to be openly available, but making it sustainable. Um, so that's cool. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And that explains why it says on deeplearningbook.org, <laughs> it says, you know, there's something like an FAQ at the bottom that's like, can I get a PDF version? It's like, no, you can't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm in, yeah. Um, I, I'd love, I'd love to be able, it's, we aspire going forward to be able to figure out the model that does allow us to have that PDF. We're yeah. still working on it. So. No, I mean, in terms of a browsing experience on your computer anyway, I think HTML is better. Like there's no point in having this idea that information should fit into a, into a small box yeah. shape, uh, when you can scroll infinitely anyway. So, um, mm. I think that's great. So going beyond just MIT Press, what tools or technologies are needed to build public digital infrastructure um, for open access publishing? So that, that's a great question. Um, I think it would surprise a lot of people looking from the outside at the publishing industry and, and, and seeing all the digital publishing that's happening to know um, you know, how consolidated the underlying platforms and technologies are. So in the university press world, for example, there are very few hosting platforms that we choose among. Um, and I can remember early on when I had gotten involved in the world of digital publishing, I, you know, I kept thinking like, wow, you know, I should go off and, and just build one of these digital hosting platforms because there's so much demand. And you look at academic journal publishers, publishers and they're literally hopping back and forth between two or three, or maybe three or four choices of these, these platforms, a couple of which, by the way, are now owned by private equity, but that's another conversation. Um, you know, I, I believe very strongly that this is a space that needs more competition, that needs some open source solutions. Um, one of the things that um, I've been really pleased to have been involved in over the last several years was helping launch an independent nonprofit called Knowledge Futures. Um, which created, developed, and, and, and runs uh, open source community publishing um, technologies for a range of, of different groups. And the MIT Press does a lot of its open book publishing on PubHub. It's the PubHub platform that Knowledge Futures runs. Um, several of our journals, like the Harvard Data Science Review. Um, and But there are other universities, other presses, uh, even governments that, that, that use the platform. And the way that mm. I think about it is, you know, this isn't about, um, you know, the way in which we do science publishing or data publishing is absolutely broken. So we have to destroy what we have and create something new. I, I think about it in terms of multiple levers of change and creating al alternatives that work well um, and that gradually kind of shift the wheel and the, and the balance of power um, and when I speak about the balance of power, I'm talking about the, the power that a, lo a lot of these large commercial companies, both publishing companies and technology companies, have over the research publication space. Cool. Very interesting and amazing how many different organizations related 
to open source that you're involved with personally. So the MIT Press itself, in a way, you know, lots of open source involvement, the Creative Commons, and now also to hear about Knowledge Futures. Very cool. Um, so we have your thoughts, and clearly we know how important it is to have openness uh, in books, in papers. Um, what are your thoughts also on making data and code available where possible? Yeah. Um, you know, and anybody that's that's publishing research today thinks about um, the products of the research process beyond just the textual textual content. We're thinking also of what is the methodology and what were the protocols in the research and how can that information be shared? What about the data? Um, and certainly what about the code? And, you know, what we all aspire to um, is having all of this content um, accessible in ideally standardized ways that uh, protects people's privacy where it needs to be protected, um, protects the interests of, of, you know, researchers that for whatever reason might not be in a position to share their data, but that ultimately allows us to accelerate the pace of research and discovery uh, by being able to compute over that data, you know, over that code, et cetera. So, um, you know, I feel very, very strongly about that. It's, it's an, it's a somewhat different conversation for a publisher like me, though, than it is for a university or a funding agency. Um, you know, I think early on when we became aware of the fact that if we publish a journal article, um, you know, say in neurochemistry, and we feel like it's the best policy to make the related data available, it's not necessarily that, that we are publishing the data. Um, we are essentially enforcing a policy that says, you know, for this journal, you have to make your data available, but you're going to make it available through your university or potentially through, um, you know, your funding partner or on some other platform or repository. Mm -hmm. So this is, a, this is a much bigger for, you know, as I see it, this is a, um, this is a, an issue of, of governments, you know, and in the U.S., certainly at the federal level, to come up with that solution. What is, what is going to be our data commons um, to accelerate research? And if you think about the global situation right now and, you know, the, the, the position that the U.S. is in with respect to its preeminence in research now as opposed to several years ago, the ability to um, capture, preserve, share, and ultimately mine research data is, is a big right. part of what we want to see going forward. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Struggling with broken pipelines, stale dashboards, missing data? You're not alone. Look no further than Monte Carlo, the leading end-to-end -end data observability platform. In the same way that New Relic and Datadog ensure reliable software and keep application downtime at bay, Monte Carlo solves the costly problem of data downtime. As detailed in episode number 499 with the firm's brilliant CEO, Bar Moses, Monte Carlo monitors and alerts for data issues across your data warehouses, lakes, ETL, and business intelligence, reducing data incidents by 90% or more. Start trusting your data with Monte Carlo today. Visit www.montecarlodata.com to learn more. Um, so it's super cool to me how this kind of openness and yes, you know, we do need to have considerations probably just beyond. Yeah, there, there are more complications. Uh, yeah, just geopolitical complications around uh, how much things can be shared. But generally speaking, um, geopolitical situations notwithstanding, 
the availability of papers, books, data, code, uh, the more people that have access to it, the more brains there are involved in solving problems that can have a huge impact on society. So every single person in the world, every single person listening to this podcast in particular um, has the capacity to make an enormous impact with what they do with their lives. And the more information that you have access to, whether for reading or for feeding into your models, the bigger your impact can be. It's, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's taking the long view of decades or centuries. We live at a time today where there's, where a lot of people in the world, certainly not everyone in the world, but a lot of people in the world for the first time in history don't have to worry about whether they're going to have enough to eat and don't have to worry about uh, being murdered in a war. It's, you know, there's obviously exceptions <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, at this time that we're recording. We, there's our particularly salient exceptions, but mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, we enjoy this, this abundance that would have been unimaginable um, two generations ago, three generations ago even. Um, and yeah, science progress has facilitated this and I'm kind of reiterating the point now, but, uh, the, the more brains that are, that have access Brain, to brains and machines, yeah. right? It's brains and yeah, machines. Right, right, right. Yeah, go ahead. That is a, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. But, uh, but on the point of brains, there's, we want to make sure that all of the brains have yeah. the opportunity to participate. So that is correct. Um, so science and engineering, historically, um, women and minorities are underrepresented in, in these fields. Um, so we, call, we can call them the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM. Um, you know, there's this underrepresentation issue where we are not, so even if we lived in this world where there weren't geopolitical issues and we didn't, we didn't worry about particular information getting into particular people's hands, we could have all of this data, all of this information be open access. But if we have this, um, this inequity, we're still not making the most of it um, because yeah, we're not right. getting everyone involved. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I, I, I think about it in terms of that brain power. I think about, you know, think of what's lost when you, you know, don't have a whole participation, you know, of a population in solving certain problems. Um, and so this is an issue now, certainly in research, you know, the, the ability of people in the global South to participate in research and the way in which how we publish. And I, you know, as a publisher, think about this uh, impacts that it's not just the access to content, it, it, who, who, you know, what is authorship and who has the right to participate as an author? Um, what are the barriers to that? Uh, this is a big mm. issue right now um, in open access models. And I'd, I'd love to come back to, to that if you'd want to talk more about it. I think where you were going was, was uh, um, you know, around our interest at the press in publishing um, as many diverse, marginalized uh, voice, voices that um, previously have been underrepresented and how that even changes, you know, how we think about the definition of what science is, um, you know, we we're, we're soon going to be launching a series um, called Epistemologies of, of the Global South, which I'm very excited about. Uh, but you know, my own, because of my own personal experience as a woman in science, I'd been a grad student at MIT. I was in academia for a while, and then I left to, to go into publishing. 
um, you know, I, I felt like it wasn't a level playing field for, for men and women at all. And when I decided to come back to MIT in this, in this role as director of the press, you know, one of the things I, I really wanted to do was to use that privileged position um, to provide opportunities for, uh, you know, women to publish uh, about their, their STEM work, um, to, to create a platform um, for, uh, you know, books that would inspire uh, kids and especially young women and young girls into careers in, in uh, science and technology. We've, we've gone, you know, fully in that direction now, both in books that we're publishing at the M MIT Press and in partnership with a, with a children's publisher as well. Um, and it did lead to my um, thinking of essentially conceiving of this, this film called Picture a Scientist. Um, and yes, yeah. And, and through that, I really wanted to, um, you know, to pay homage to these women that I, that I had known, some of whom I had known when I was a grad student um, at MIT in the 80s, uh, and that I had heard about, you know, through the years of having essentially gotten the uh, president of MIT to admit in 1999, which seems like it's not too long ago, uh, that, that women were, were being discriminated against uh, in the resources they had access to, how they were being compensated, in the opportunities you know, that they had access to, the uh, size of their labs. And that was a real turning point in academia. Yeah. All right. So, Amy, you've talked about uh, how MIT Press is involved in publishing not only books by uh, women and minorities in STEM fields, but also about them and being a leader in that area. And then you also mentioned uh, this film, Picture a Scientist, which is kind of related to that. So um, not only is your work as director at MIT Press um, helping to uh, create content for, about, by uh, historically underrepresented books in STEM fields, but on top of that, you've been executive producer of this amazing film, Picture a Scientist. So I haven't finished it yet, but I've started it. I'm about halfway through and it is completely absorbing. It is no surprise that it was selected for a 2020 uh, Tribeca Film Festival um, appearance. Premiere. Uh, yeah. Premiere is the right word. I don't know the lingo. Yeah. Um, and it was so sad. Yeah, it's available. It was right, right before the pandemic. We were all set to go and then, you know, then it didn't happen. But it was selected. <laughs> so. Yeah, is that right bad? in my neighborhood here? Yeah, okay. I'm basically in Tribeca here. Oh, and uh, yeah, I, I'm a little bit south of Tribeca uh, cool. in the financial district of Manhattan. But uh, yeah, I yeah, it is the, the pandemic ruined a lot of things, including yeah, being able to. Was it like a virtual premiere or something like that? Um, there were some. I think there were some virtual screenings, you know. But uh, and and of course, it was still an honor to have been selected. But certainly the, the pandemic changed the whole course of, of how that film was seen by the world. But in some ways, you know, for the better, because there were so many screenings on campus and so many good conversations with people. So. Right, yeah, and it's available around the world on Netflix. It's about 100 minutes long. But if you don't have access to Netflix, there's even a 13-minute version called The Uprising that is um, kind of key excerpts of it. And that's available for free on the MIT YouTube channel. So, um, Amy, how did you get inspired to make this film? I guess you kind of, you've, you talked about already how 
you know, you were exposed to these stories, you know, being at MIT, um, this big change in 1999 around uh, the president of the university having to acknowledge that women have smaller labs than men on average, uh, and significantly smaller on average. Um, but, you know, having that idea, <laughs> thinking, hey, I, you know, I, I'm aware of these stories. And, um, you know, I might have thought if I was running a publishing company, I might have thought I need to make a book about this. But you made a film about it. So uh, how did that end up happening? Uh, yeah, happy to talk about that. Um, when I was, um, I, I will say when I was a grad student at MIT in the 80s, it was really hard to find a woman's bathroom almost anywhere that you went. And this was, you know, a constant source of griping. But um, huh. I, you know, I became aware of the fact, um, I guess it was about four or five years ago, through the MIT libraries and the archives, that there was an effort to collect the papers of uh, many um, incredibly eminent women at MIT who had been in the 90s, the, I think something like the only 16 or 17 tenured women on the, on the um, faculty of science at MIT, just a very, very small number. I had known some of them when I was a grad student at MIT. Um, and the archivist at the library said, you know, maybe you wanna do a book about this. Uh, and so I agreed to meet mm -hmm. with all the women. I, I remember that that meeting oh, clearly wow. to this day. Um, and it was in the course of that conversation that we we thought, well, it would be a lot easier for for everybody if we just um, did like we're doing now, you know, film audio interviews of everyone to capture their story, and we'll build the book from there. And mm. we were very quickly able to um, obtain funding for this project to uh, collect all this footage. The American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Cambridge uh, loaned us this incredible space to bring all the women together. Um, friends of mine who were closer to the, the film industry connected me to two incredible uh, directors who take most of the credit for the ultimate film that you see, Sharon Shattuck and Ian Cheney. Um, but I, you know, I essentially hired them to come in and, and do these interviews. We got about 30 hours of interview footage with, uh, just, you know, an incredible group. I think almost everyone who had been, who was still alive, who had, uh, you know, been part of this, uh, movement at MIT in the nineties that led to the report on the status of women on the faculty of science at MIT and led to then president Chuck Vest saying, and it being covered in the New York times, uh, you know, that women were being discriminated against at MIT, all, all of those people, you know, came back. Um, and because the footage we captured was so remarkable and, you know, there was just mm -hmm. great, I would say, kind of synergy with the filmmakers, um, we realized that we had not only a, a book um, project, but we, uh -huh. we also had the potential for a documentary film. And mm -hmm. um, Ian and Sharon, you know, had... I was, as executive producer, my main function was uh, to um, help raise money, which I did, um, you know, for for the film, um, while they sort of shaped the broader story that went out beyond MIT to bring in um, a couple of other just a, a amazing women and their stories from other universities. Uh, so so that's that's really how it came about. And, and the, the book... Um, we did the book is happening, but it's it's not happening at the MIT Press. It's happening, uh, you know, elsewhere. But I'm so excited about it. A number of other 
book projects resulted from this as well. We just put out uh, a book called Carbon Queen, uh, which is a, a biography of uh, Millie Dresselhouse, who uh, was was among the what we call the MIT 16, these remarkable women. Uh, and it's the story of her career at MIT. Um, so. so incredible to hear that story. And having watched half the film, I can mm -hmm. confirm that there are stunning, um, uh, emotionally moving interviews. Everybody presents, in everything I've seen so far, everybody presents what happened to them so articulately um, and so clearly you can see, you can, you can almost experience alongside them, uh, yeah, the, the unpleasantness or the, the unfairness, the unjustness of, of historically, and probably still today, a lot of people experience. Um, in fact, I know even from those interviews, definitely still today, um, that it, it sounds like, especially, um, you know, if you add multiple of these minorities together, so if you're not just a woman or not just black, that if you're a black woman, then, you know, it's, it's still today the, at conferences, at university, in meetings, it sounds like there's lots of small ways that you are made to feel like you are not part of the community, that you're not, say, a scientist or an engineer. Um, mm. And yeah, so hearing, yeah, hearing these stories presented so clearly, so articulately, um, yeah, it really, yeah, it's, it's been a moving experience for me and I can't wait to finish watching the film. Einblick is a faster and more collaborative way to explore your data and build models. It was developed at MIT and showed to reduce time to insight by 30 to 50%. Einblick is based on a novel progressive engine, so no matter the data size, your analysis won't slow down. And Einblick's novel interface supports the seamless combination of no-code operations with Python code. This makes Einblick the go-to data science platform for the entire organization. Sign up for free today at einblick.ai. That's E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K dot A-I. E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K dot A-I. Well, thank you. Yeah, I do, I do think of it as that, that metaphor of like death by a thousand cuts, right? That, you know, through, through the course of whether you're in the Silicon Valley company or you're in, you know, a science department at Harvard or MIT or elsewhere, um, you know, the day-to-day -day experiences of, of not being included or not being listened to or, or not being taken seriously. And um, it, it does continue. Uh, and it, addressing those concerns requires just ongoing vigilance, um, you know, on the part of people who are in a position to make decisions about an individual's career growth. Uh, and that, that, you know, in, in the period of time when I when I wasn't at MIT, um, in my professional career, I spent some of that time working at Harvard uh, in the provost's office, specifically on these issues, on, on uh, faculty mm. diversity and, and equity and career paths for faculty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so building on what you're saying there, I, I do really encourage people to watch this film uh, to get a sense of this in more detail, but an analogy that... Um, that the film keeps coming back to is this idea of an iceberg where yes. um, above the surface, there are 
really kind of blatant sexual harassment types of behaviors where like like actual like groping or or you know sexual comments that kind of thing these are the kinds of things that it's like obvious sexual harassment but that's like the tip of the iceberg it's a small amount of the issues that um, underrepresented people face in STEM fields. It's really what's under the water that has by far the biggest impact. What you just described is like the, the death by a thousand cuts where it's being left off of an email chain or your opinion not being listened to in a meeting where that same opinion expressed by a white man is listened to. Um, and so it's the accumulation of all of these kinds of things that, um, you know, it sounds like certainly was a bigger issue at MIT in the 90s, but no question um, still happens today, as you say, uh, in academia, as well as in uh, big tech companies, um, these kinds of, um, I don't want to say smaller, but like more subtle, um, mm -hmm. yeah, more, more subtle behaviors uh, in a way that um, maybe to the person who's, who's saying them or doing them, you you might not even be aware that it's having an impact, and I guess it's kind of that lack of awareness that hopefully films like this um, can can bring up. That you know you if you are a white man, you could be going around doing and saying things that are having a big impact on people without you realizing it. So um, beyond just the impact or the the content of this film, I'd also love to learn a little bit about um, what it was like making it. So. You've alluded to this a little bit, but what does it mean to be the executive producer of a film? What is that like? You know, you've talked about getting the film kind of off the ground, but then once you've had these interviews, you've got the footage, you've realized, let's make this a movie. What happens next? Um, yeah, so I, I came into this knowing absolutely nothing about making films, and I would not have known a few years ago what being an executive producer was either. So it it... Um, you know, it came out of my interest in, in realizing that we could do this because I had fabulous creative partners and wanting to help make it happen, being in a position to um, help raise the funds to, to make the film happen. And I think it wasn't until it actually came to kind of signing agreements with the production company that, that Ian and Sharon were running to make this movie that executive producer was qualified as an individual who, you know, raises a certain amount of money or raises the majority of, of funding for the film. Um, I think sometimes executive producers are, are more involved in the creative process. I was very much involved at the outset and have more of a kind of a stamp on the film, the short film that you mentioned, The Uprising. And then later, Ian and Sharon, um, went off to realize, you know, their creative vision in picture a scientist. And, uh, you know, oh. I was in the, I was in the background saying, uh, you know, I'm going to raise money to make this happen for you. Uh, you know, please consult with me. I want to make sure that, you know, I still love what you're doing, but it, but it was really their creative vision. And I'm, I'm oh. doing this again in an entirely different area. I've, um, met this wonderful, I was living in Vermont during the pandemic and I met a wonderful young filmmaker uh, who's making a film actually about design, build architecture in Vermont, which I'm also very passionate about. And I um, hmm. have committed to uh, executive produce another, another film in an entirely different oh, area cool. because part of it is I, I just really 
I love working with young people. I love helping them see their interests and their passions come to fruition. So Amazing. Well, I look forward to checking that out as well. Given how uh, wonderful this film is, I'm sure that that will be a success as well. And then you also uh, corrected me on something there. Um, I didn't know that the uprising came before Picture Scientist. So the short 13-minute film that's available on the MIT YouTube channel, that came first. I had this impression, not having watched that shorter film, that it was kind of like excerpts, like cut well, together to make... They were developed at the oh, same right. time oh, where okay. we we had a... Um, we had an agreement that there would be a short film that was just about the MIT story where, uh, you know, the actually not just me, but it was, it was effectively sponsored by the MIT press, which is unusual for a press to do. And that the longer film, um, that was being made would be financially, even though I was raising money for it was financially handled outside of MIT. Um, got it, got so it, got it. they're, they're, it's confusing. They're overlapping in many ways. Right, right. So they're two separate projects, but using some of the same media. Exactly. And conveying the same idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, so a prominent uh, issue in the film, which we've already talked about, is how, um, well, what culminates in 1999 in the president of MIT having to acknowledge that women, on average, have a significantly smaller uh, lab spaces than than their equivalent male peers, um, equivalent at least in terms of um, uh, title, um, like assistant professor, professor, that kind of thing. And so uh, the film discusses the lead up to that a fair bit. Um, and so you were at MIT School of Science at that same time frame. Um, you mentioned how coming across mm. women's bathrooms, for example, could be mm. something that's hard to do. Are there other things that you experienced while you were there? Um, yeah, and I think it was more, you know, along the sort of subtle lines. I mean, being very, you know, aware right. of the fact that women were uh, in a minority. Um, there were certainly some fabulous female mentors at MIT, but you know, if you if you're coming into a field and you see that you are not as well represented as men, it whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, you know, makes you question your career choices. Um, mm -hmm. I, I remember, uh, you know, thinking that, um, the, the women that I knew in, in, you know, the field that I was, uh, working in, um, it seemed to me that they were, they were working so much harder. You know, I remember thinking that, that, mm -hmm. that this, it, it, it just doesn't feel like a level playing field. Um, right. And I, I often feel that way today. I mean, I sometimes tell people the story like, okay, so I'm, I'm running this publishing company. I had the experience um, about four or five years ago of having to uh, lay someone off. And, uh, and this was a white male. Um, and, I, and I had very good reasons for, for, for letting him go. And, I, and I'm his boss, right? And I go to lay him off and he looks at me and he says, that is not acceptable. Like, Wow. Actually, it is totally. And that, you know, that's an everyday thing. And it just was such a like a wake up call to me because I thought, you know, your worldview about your privilege and what is due to you versus, you know, um, just a woman walking through the world. It, so and, and I know, you know, that the same issues come up in, in all kinds of, of industries. 
I do think that there is um, something about, you know, academic science and the way in which um, we judge excellence and the way in which careers progress where it's a particularly sticky problem where there's a lot of entrenched bias. And part of my interest in this relates to my work in the field of publishing because I look at, you know, what is what is that record of production and science and, and how is how is excellence being assessed, right? And often it leads to, you know, many more opportunities to exclude or marginalize women and and, and other groups. Um, all of it's almost like all of the underlying social dynamics get amplified and, and exacerbated through the systems that we use to do re- research, you know, create new knowledge, publish it, judge it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something that I think can make that issue particularly salient in academia. Um, and this is mentioned in the film picture scientists, which is why it's top of mind for me is that there are these dependency structures embedded in it. So when you're doing your PhD, you typically have one PhD supervisor. And so if you're a young female PhD student and you have an older male PhD supervisor who has all of this power over you, it can create, uh, if, if that person wants to abuse that power, they're in a position where it, it's easier to do so. Um, and so, yeah, so that was something about academia in particular that, um, that was brought up exactly. there. And kind of, you're dependent on this person. If you want to then, you know, get a postdoc, you're going to need this person's letter of reference. Um, uh-huh. but actually now that I'm saying that out loud, almost every work relationship is like that, where you're dependent on one person, <laughs> like but that kind of power the, dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, you, you want to make sure whether you're, you know, in school and class with your professors or in any job that you do that you're thinking about, you know, how do I make sure that I'm protecting these relationships? I get the best letter of reference that I can, but it it does play out differently in academia because of the networks. I mean, we tend to think about, okay, you're in the discipline of biology or computer science, but think about all the sub-disciplines within that and how small these communities are. These people, you know, they know one another, they might have, right. you know, the leaders might have gone to school together. Um, it, it, it does tend to be, you know, to lend itself more to a certain type of cronyism. Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, to your point about how it can seem like, say, the women are needing to work a lot harder to be at the same uh, position um, in academia as a man. Um, there was an interesting part of an interview in the part of uh, picture scientists that I've watched so far where um, a woman of color talks about how she ends up investing so much time in every email, making sure that she's getting the tone right because mm-hmm. there's a perception of, like there can be stereotypes against her of like, you know, being quick to be angry or something and so she has to put all this extra care and she's like, what if I add up all of that extra time spent trying to really articulate clearly in an email to make sure that I'm striking the right balance as opposed to, you know, maybe me as a white man, I can just say how I'm feeling and I'm not going to encounter the same kind of um, resistance or, or backlash. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that is, that was an interesting example to me, um, a specific example of how 
it can end up being the case that somebody in an underrepresented group can end up having to invest so much more time in getting the same outcome. Yeah, that that was um, the chemistry shell works. And it's also, for me, one of the most salient stories in the film about the amount of time that she invests and how that's time away from doing the science that that she wants to do. And, mm-hmm. and that comes through, you know, in, in Nancy Hopkins story as well. You know, she there's this this moment, you know, in the film where she says, I didn't you know, I didn't want to be an activist. And all of a sudden I realized that this right. this is what I had to do. And, and to this day, you know, she's become a good friend. Um, she talks about, you know, the, that her investing in telling the story and, and affecting this change through, you know, collective social action took away from her science. and and you know, she's no doubt happy about the impact she's had on the world, but it's, it's painful for her. Yeah. Yep. Um, so what can we do to change STEM so that it's more welcoming to everyone? You know, it starts, it starts at the beginning. I always think in terms of pipeline. So in terms of education, it is, you know, how do you expose, uh, young kids, um, you know, of all ethnicities and, and genders um, around the world to, to STEM careers in a way that makes them attractive and accessible. Um, you know, certainly in the workplace, in my workplace, uh, and publishing is a very white, undiverse industry. We're constantly focusing on how do we attract people into publishing. But in, in um, you know, we've been working at the press um, on this issue of making STEM recognizable to kids at a young age through new children's publishing efforts that we're doing. Uh, we started a partnership with uh, the wonderful Candlewick Press, which is one of the leading children's publishers uh, in the country. And they happen to be located in Somerville, not far from us, with two new imprints, um, MIT Press Kids and MIT Teens, um, that are focused, I, I would say, not just on STEM, I'd say STEAM, um, field. So bringing in the arts as well. Um, but at the MIT press itself, we had started publishing graphic novels for adults, you know, a few years ago and have now started to do, um, you know, graphic novels for young adults. Uh, one of them that was that, that I, I love that came out, I want to say it was, I think it was, yes, it was last year, um, or earlier this year is called the Curie Society. And it's, uh, adventure stories um, illustrated in kind of comic book style of young women solving complex scientific problems, um, and has named been named after you know, Marie Curie. Named after Marie Curie. And next month we actually have a, a book coming out called Power On, which is intended to make um, tells you know stories of, of coding uh, for kids that show how empowering it is to be able to actually do computer programming and code. And it represents wow. in the book through the illustrations, just like a d- very diverse population of kids. And we're really, really excited about that one as well. Um, so, you know, cause we, we, and some of the normal adult publishing we were doing, whether it was, you know, graphic novel treatments of complex topics, we had one on the history of feminism not too long ago. And then we had another one on wow. the origins of the universe by the wonderful uh, Clifford Johnson at USC. Um, 
you know, there, we were realizing that there was a young adult audience for these books and also for some of our essential knowledge books, which are very short introductions to topics and uh, started out in science and technology. And, and now it's across the range of fields that we publish in. Uh, we realized that, you know, this was just a natural direction for us to go in. Um, but we also realized that we, we could do, you know, some of these books for young adults, but when it came to publishing, truly publishing well for young children, um, that went beyond, you know, our capabilities and our area of expertise. And, and from that came the decision to partner with Candlewit. Wow, that's so cool. So I personally love graphic novels of complex topics. So some particular ones that have impacted me uh, in recent years, there's a book called Logic Comics, which yes. is about uh, Bertrand Russell and mm. logic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it's called, yeah. So yeah, I learned a ton about philosophy and his really interesting biographical history, both as an academic as well as an anti-war activist. Um, so that was really cool. It sounds like you're very familiar with it. Um, and then also yeah. uh, Yuval Noah Harari uh, yeah. is my favorite nonfiction author today. I absolutely love his book, Sapiens, and now they're releasing it yeah. as graphic novels as well. I, didn't, I actually didn't episode. know that. I, I love Sapiens too. I didn't know it was coming out as graphic novels. That's very cool. Yeah, there's a, there's a first volume um, for sure that's out now at the time of recording. And uh, that's neat. it is, it's very well done. And it, I, I could see how that can be appealing to young adults. Um, the, the Sapiens one in particular, I think it seems to me like there's elements of it that they're trying to make it a bit more appealing to that younger audience. Um, but Logic Comics is, that is an adult book. Uh, and I just, I just enjoy it. It's like a nice, you know, we have to spend so much of our day feeling like we're being serious and reading you know, yeah. rigorous things. And so it's really nice to be able to relax. And I'm quite a visual person. I created a book called Deep Learning Illustrated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like visual approaches to conveying information. And um, yeah, so I, I love that those graphic novels exist. I can't wait to check out what MIT Press is releasing because I didn't know you were doing that until now. Yeah. And then going a step further, I love that you have this MIT Press kids that you're, uh, you know, working with. Candle, uh, Candlewick on? Candlewick, yeah. We also have, um, can, we have in our MIT Press bookstore, which is, uh, you know, it was closed for some time during the pandemic and just reopened within um, the MIT Museum here in Cambridge, a large children's section now, um, which is, it's just fabulous. And it has not only our books, but books of other publishers that are intended to inspire young kids all the way down to those like really little chunky books that you give to nine months old, you know, children um, into these topics. So. Uh, cool. And so we got on to talking about this topic yeah, because we were talking about how we can help change STEM so that it's more welcoming to everyone. And so <laughs> for listeners that have forgotten that that's how we got, that we got here. Um, yeah. Such an incredible example. I guess it's sort of too easy to talk about, oh, you know, we have these big problems in the world, but look, look at the world. We do. It's a world literally <laughs> on fire and we need all the brain power and compute power uh, to, to be solving these big problems in the world. Um, sure. And part of, you know, and so certainly when it comes to data science, that's the work of, of a lot of the listeners to this podcast. But in my world, I think about it, you know, in terms of how, how do you shorten the path from 
you know, idea and discovery to impact on the world? How do you broaden participation in, um, in research so that we can bring all that brain capacity around the world, starting at a young age uh, to bear on these issues? Um, you know, fortunately, as a publisher who has to sustain and, and run a business, there's just been ex an explosion of, of growth um, in, in interest in, in these topics as well. So, Wonderful. you know, when I came back to the press, um, almost seven years ago, uh, we had a very large and successful and have for many years publishing program, um, for general readers in art and architecture and design and much less so in STEM topics. And, and now, you know, publishing books for, uh, we like to call them books that honor the complexity of their subject matter, but they are books also for the general reader. Um, just, you know, very, very successful. And it, and, and it feels like it's an opportunity for us as a publisher to actually have, you know, an influence on public policy. I mean, that's the way I think about it. So cool. Yeah. So now that I know that MIT Press is doing all this, it sounds like for me, Finding gifts for people, which is perennially <laughs> a big issue for me. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, no matter whether they're nine months old or 90 <laughs> years old, yeah. I'm going to be able to find a great, super interesting book about a topic that I'm passionate about that could also um, help open horizons um, or perceptions of young people, old people to uh, the impact they could be making in the world with science and technology um, and engineering. And you can be, be sure cool. if the you know, sure, if it's a book coming from the press, it's it's going to be beautifully designed and often beautifully illustrated and packaged. But this isn't an advertisement, so. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, there's been no sponsorship by MIT Press or any. No. This, uh, yeah, anything. This is entirely, uh, yeah, my uh, personal opinions and mm -hmm. uh, that are that are being reflected here. Cool, Amy. So we've talked about how things like the MIT Press Kids can be helpful for um, opening people's, uh, opening young people's eyes to uh, two opportunities in science and engineering, even if they come from um, historically underrepresented STEM backgrounds. Um, but um, going back to an earlier conversation in the conversation, we also talked about how open source can itself be a driver of, um, of more equality because we have, uh, yeah, more minds that can be involved. Uh, there's mm -hmm. fewer barriers to entry. And so with that in mind, and given your rich, rich expertise in open source, what do you think is the best open source model going forward? Um, great question. It's something I think a lot about, you know, what we're trying to do at the MIT Press is create open access models that don't perpetuate bias either in terms of access to the content, but also in terms of ability to participate as an author. Uh, part of what's happened over the course of the whole open access movement, and it's a movement that um, has a lot of very, very driven advocates uh, behind it, um, is that we've, we've reached a place right now in academic publishing where most of the open access that's happening is happening through pay to publish models. Uh, so when we talk about an open access journal, typically what's happening is the author is being asked or they're getting money from their university or, or their grant funder to uh, pay a publisher to in exchange for making that work openly available. Um, 
okay, so the work ends up open access, but you've created a whole host of other inequities in terms of who's able to participate. Inequities across fields, because some fields have more grant funding across institutions, because some universities will have those resources, uh, and certainly across geographic regions um, in, in the world. And, you know, right, I, yeah. I love this particular example because it's a, it's a great example of what happens when we kind of reduce ourselves to simplistic binary thinking, uh, you know, open is good and closed is bad. So open at all costs. And in fact, the, the, the issues here are very, very uh, complex and you need to think about uh, models that, um, you know, don't essentially fall prey to this kind of unintended consequence. And that's what we've been trying to do at the MIT press. So for example, our open book model, which we launched this year is an, a collective institutional subsidy model, which means that if we reach a threshold of institutional support, then we just open up all the books that we publish in a particular season, which we did for our scholarly monographs oh, this year. Wow. And, you know, um, we're not requesting that individual authors pay for that, for that privilege. Uh, and so that's an example of the kind of model that I'd, I'd really like to see more of. And those of us um, who work on open access and open data, you know, we're trying to come up with ways of uh, funding and subsidizing the whole ecosystem to, to, to make open possible. Really innovative. I hadn't heard of models like that before, and I had not thought of the issues inherent in the prevailing open source model today where we rely on the the author coming up with <laughs> money, which of course, yeah, I hadn't thought of how that introduces its own biases. Huh. So, all right, going back to earlier in your career, um, you did a cognitive science PhD. And, um, and at that time, it sounds like from conversation that you and I were having just before we started recording, that you also considered computer science as an option. So, what fascinates you about natural language <laughs> and about natural language processing? Um, yeah, so so much to this day, you know, we all think about the past that we we could have could have taken and, and didn't take. When I when I was an undergraduate at Barnard slash Columbia, my, my um, undergraduate degree was in linguistics, and and I had always been, you know, fascinated. You were talking about you know, philosophy and philosophy of language and logic, just fascinated by imposing formal structure on symbol and symbolic systems, you know, and that could go in several directions. It could go into linguistics. It could go into the study of mind and language, um, certainly go into natural language processing. And I'd had a minor in computer science and thought about that path. So when I came to no MIT, kidding. yeah, when I came to MIT, I was, in cognitive science, but largely studying linguistics and had a secondary advisor in, in computer science, what's now CSAIL at MIT. Um, oh, uh, yeah. you know, someone who's, you know, whose focus was on natural language processing. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I was interested as my career went on in, um, how brains and machines uh, learn symbolic systems and, and learn language and ultimately kind of went in the direct, the, the human development direction. But because my focus 
and and this could only happen at MIT, right? Because my focus was on the the formal structure of these systems, and I was working closely with Noam Chomsky. Um, you know, wow. it was it was very it was very much um, you know sort of form, formal modeling of these systems, and and my dissertation, you know, was about this very very esoteric thing in syntactic theory and how this this particular principle is is learned by children in English, French, and Spanish. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I stayed in academia for a while, but, um, realized that it was these, these larger kind of philosophical questions kept calling me back and I found my way into publishing. Um, you know, I, I, I think I could have been pretty successful as an academic. Um, and I still, love to do research and publish and I and I continue to do that kind of more in in the field of scholarly communication and information science but to me it's so mm -hmm. closely related to what I was doing before well I for one am very grateful that you are doing what you're doing I mean yeah no doubt you uh, could have been if you chosen to focus even more <laughs> on academics than you have you could have made an enormous impact but I love the impact that you are making by yeah, disseminating incredible literature um, and now films as well. Um, but on the note of your research, later research of yours is more about, as you kind of alluded to, um, authorship in academic research. So topics of credit, collaboration, contribution, attribution, even plagiarism. Um, and you point to classifying contributions and setting standards for role taxonomy. Could you elaborate on why this is important? Um, and what are the blockers, if any, to implementing a system like that? Um, sure. Just, just I'll start just quickly on, on how this came about. So I mentioned that I had spent some time at Harvard in the provost's office and my, my job when I was there for about four or five years um, was to help pull together tenure and promotion cases and, and, and look at uh, people's kind of record of of scholarship and excellence. Um, really, really fascinating work, also closely related to publishing. But it became clear to me that we, there's this issue. Like if you if you're preparing your CV or your dossier, um, and you happen to be a researcher, where the main record of what you've done or achieved is a list of publications. Um, there's a total mismatch between how that information is conveyed and what actually happened in the research. So, mm. you know, you may be familiar with the fact that it's, it's pretty common practice uh, in the sciences, which are increasingly multi-authored to have the first author or the last author positions, which are the most prominent be say the lab mm. head, the person who obtained mm. um, the funding. Um, and to have there be like no indication in a long list of authors, like who actually, you know, was behind this methodology, who actually did this work, right. who actually did the writing of this paper. Um, and the fact that that, that process is sort of like two dimensional way of representing authorship obfuscates all the contribution underneath just, you know, struck me as, as being one of the ways in which the biases that we've been talking about through this conversation get perpetuated and, and particularly right. a barrier for young researchers because the culture of a lot of labs, I mean, of course, it varies from field to field is, you know, graduate students and postdocs might be doing the bulk of the work, but mm -hmm. um, might not be in that most prominent author position. So right. the way I think about things as a sort of data scientist monkey, I guess, 
is that let's create another dimension on which to represent this other, uh, this other um, signal, right? That, um, okay, you know, we don't have to change anything about the order of author names, but we can have a way of signaling in a machine readable way that, you know, this individual contributed um, to the underlying statistical model, or this individual did the bulk of the, the, um, you know, data analysis or writing or what have you. Um, And so I, while I was still working at Harvard, I pulled together a bunch of people I knew who would get this whole problem space and a bunch of people who probably never thought about things that way into a workshop. And, you know, this was 2012, I think, that we we had this workshop. Um, and just a couple of months ago, or maybe just a couple of weeks ago, the National Information Standards Organization announced that this taxonomy uh, is, is now in a formal technical standard, oh, um, wow. which is really fun. And, and it's, the, again, it's it's collaborative work. There are several people involved, um, worked most closely with my, my colleague in the UK, Liz Allen. Um, and there were several people involved, but, um, you know, we, over the years, we've seen more and more publishers adopt this standard so that it means that if you're, you know, publishing a paper in cell, for example, um, mm-hmm. and you're contributing it, you're not only going to indicate who the authors are, you're going to choose from the standardized taxonomy of roles, um, who did, who did what, um, wow. and it's, it's adoption is growing, you know, there's, there's still, um, barriers because it's obviously an imperfect taxonomy. There are only 14 roles and there, there are many ways to talk about contribution. And of course, you know, the ways in which people contribute to research varies tremendously across the different right. fields, but, but it's a good place to start. And so, yeah. you know, my, yeah, my hope is that, that it continues to grow and it just changes the conversation and, and enriches the vocabulary that we have to talk about how we've contributed uh, to research or contributed to an article. Very cool. I can see the utility in this. There are a handful of papers from my time when I used to be publishing papers regularly, where it does state exactly what I did on the paper. And I'm always like, that seems really helpful. Like, uh, it just, you know, it's nice that I'm being acknowledged for having done the statistical analysis, for example. Um, and that it's clear that somebody else actually did all the writing and that I wasn't really involved in that at all. Um, Yeah, it makes so much sense to be able to have that on paper. So, yeah, great that you've done that. Yeah, Um, but the way it was being done in the past, though, was in a free text way. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, and so the whole whole point of standardizing it is, is again, to make it machine readable. And even though this kind of description is qualitative, essentially, it it provides a foundation for um, other quantitative metrics to be created that go beyond the kinds of metrics we use currently. Um, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I can imagine a whole other career for myself where all I did full time was work on different types of things like this, because I'm fascinated by it. And, um, but I'm, I'm glad to see this come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, super cool. I look forward to seeing more of that. Uh, now that it has been approved as a, as a standard. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So we've had an amazing interview, an amazing conversation so far. Uh, we're wrapping it up. We're getting near the end now. And so near the end of these episodes, I always ask for a book recommendation. <laughs> and I feel sure. like with some of my guests, 
that can throw them <laughs> off guard. They weren't anticipating it. Some of them haven't been reading in a while, but now we've got somebody who has yeah. book after book going, yeah, going under your nose every day. So you, it's yeah. true. I, I, so I'll, I'll if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll provide two. One is, um, Please. I, I, I absolutely love audio and I especially mm. love it when the writers I love read their own books. And so I found my way recently mm. to, um, Ann Patchett's, uh, most recent book of essays, which is called These Precious Days. And I just absolutely love it because this is a woman who's not only a phenomenal writer, but as I I, I listen to her and I think like, I just wish she were my best friend. She's like the sanest person (laughs) in the world. But the, but the other thing is she's, she's just so passionate about books and the, and the written word. And she runs her own bookstore in Nashville and tells a lot of stories about that. Um, And so I've been recommending you know, this book to, to my colleagues at the press, but another book that I'm reading, not, not an audio is one of her own books. Um, that's called the future of work by MIT economist, mm-hmm. um, David O'Tour. Um, and it, 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 it tries to explain and then provide kind of remediation to the issue that, you know, in the, the, um, kind of what we consider have considered like blue collar jobs in the U S less specialized jobs, um, that the U.S. has kind of been falling behind in um, providing the kind of computational skills and and you know job growth that might be possible, um, and so it's about applying technology to the workplace in a way that promotes equity um, and financial wow. growth for a broader range of people. And it's it's a fabulous book, and um, I'm, I'm proud that it's one that we've published. Brilliant. Those both sound like great recommendations for our listeners. The first one, because they probably enjoy audio format, (laughs) (laughs) given that they enjoy listening to this podcast. Um, So being able to hear an author read her own work sounds great. And then the future of work. I mean, this this is such a massive opportunity and something that you were talking earlier about how publishing can influence policy. And this sounds like a perfect situation for that, because we have this huge problem of so many people, millions of people in the United States who are being displaced by change. And some of that is related to AI and automation. Um, and it seems that the, the data that we're seeing more and more of, it seems like it, automation actually increases employment opportunities and that the employment opportunities that people can have are more enjoyable. So the kind of work that gets displaced is laborious, repetitive work that humans don't really want to be doing anyway. And so there's a huge opportunity, but it only exists if people are being retrained. Right. Um, And if they're not retrained, then not only is that horrible on an individual level to be unable to find employment, but it's also, you know, it's going back to the thing about having more brains involved. It's bad for our society. It is. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So really great recommendations. Thank you. All right. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure, Amy. And so clearly you are a brilliant person with lots of interesting perspectives on a broad range of topics. Is there any particular way that listeners should be connecting with you or following with you to hear your opinions going forward? Um, Well, I'm I'm very easy to to reach at MIT. Um, I'm not very big on social media. um, So but, you know, occasionally we'll tweet about things going on at the MIT press, but I'm <laughs> just go. open to folks reaching out to me over email. 
Nice. So. All right. And we'll be sure to include uh, your Twitter handle uh, okay. in the show notes. Thank you so much, Amy, for being on the program. And yeah, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to have you on again in the future. I'd love that. Thanks so much. What a special episode that was. Dr. Brand is such an inspiring, pioneering individual who's making the world a better place through her relentless creativity, intellect, and drive. In today's episode, Amy filled us in on what it's like to run the prestigious MIT Press that has brought us so many classic data science and machine learning books, including essential open access books like Goodfellow et al.'s Deep Learning. She talked about how open access makes scholarly work more impactful on society and makes it more equitable for historically underrepresented groups in STEM. She talked about how competition and open source solutions are needed to facilitate more open access publishing across more organizations how her award-winning documentary Picture a Scientist grew organically out of interviews with exceptional female scientists, how publishing outstanding STEM books for broader audiences, including for children, can help address the biases that exist against women and minorities in STEM, and how author metadata in standardized taxonomies can help authors receive the credit they deserve for the work they've done for a given publication. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Amy's Twitter profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 567. That's superdatascience.com slash 567. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the program. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne and Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another inspiring episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.